Hello and a big warm welcome to the fastest growing podcast in British wildlife and nature. It is the Wildlife Matters podcast with me, your host, Nigel Palmer. How exciting is that? So thank you very much indeed to everyone who's listening, everyone who's downloading and sharing this podcast. We are getting out and we have coming up pretty soon hopefully by the end of this series we are gonna hit a landmark downloads and i can't wait to tell you all about it but wildlife matters is just back from a few days up on the north yorkshire moors and we've got some news to come about that so lots of exciting things lots of things going on but this week the wildlife matters podcast has been in the north of england up on the moorlands to find out all about grouse shooting in this week's wildlife matters investigates and in our main feature we expose the lies and the deception of the trail hunters and that's all coming up after this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. Hello and welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. And today we're going to be looking at grouse shooting, which starts up again every August and is stopped as much as possible by the hunt saboteurs and other groups. I thought I would cover this article from the Hunt Saboteurs Association as this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. Grouse shooting takes place on the UK uplands, with the main areas in England being the Peak District, the Yorkshire Dales, the North York Moors and the North Pennines, as well as the Lammermuir Hills and the Cairngorms in Scotland. Despite its prevalence across many areas of Northern England and Scotland, the tide is definitely turning against this hugely damaging blood sport. Just last month, the UK's largest water company, United Utilities, announced that it would not renew any leases for grouse shooting on its land once they have run out. This momentous decision could make a huge chunk of the Northwest shoot free and could mean that around 30 shoots will have to close down. One of these is shooting syndicate near Burnley that has had the pleasure of being hit by the saboteurs. It's calling it a day after this coming season as a result. So what to look out for? There are two types of grouse shooting, a driven and walked up. Driven grouse shooting is where the shooters, known as guns, stand static in shooting butts, whilst a long line of beaters scare grouse towards the line of waiting guns. Walked up shoots tend to be smaller and involves the guns walking across the moorland and shooting at the birds as they are scared into the air. Keep an eye out for the large groups of people often dressed in tweed congregating on and around the edge of moors. The shooters will obviously be carrying shotguns whereas the beaters will be carrying flags to beat with. Also look out for large groups of often 4x4 type vehicles parked off-road on or near a moorland. This is a telltale sign that the grouse shooters are out on the moors nearby. These blood sport enthusiasts often take lunch at a nearby country pub, so be sure to check the pubs for the tweed-clad Hooray Henrys 
and their car parks for clusters of 4x4s. And if you do see anything along those lines, then what should you do? Well, we recommend that you call the Hunt Saboteurs hotline number, which is, get your pen and papers ready. Oh, have you got them? Yeah, okay. 07-443-148-426. That was 07-443-148-426 and let them know the precise location of the shoot. Our eyes and ears across the countryside have saved so many lives. Grouse shooting almost exclusively takes place on land that is open access and shoots invariably pack up on the mere sight of SABs due to the fact that firearms are involved. The Hunt Saboteurs Association has a long history of smashing the grouse shoots and we don't intend to stop at any time soon. And thanks very much to the Hunt Saboteurs Association. That post was called Moreland Massacres, Spotting and Stopping Grouse Shoots. And it first appeared on the Hunt Saboteurs Association website. That has been this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. Welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates, where today we're looking at the game shooting industry in Britain. The game shooting industry is now a big business, with around 300 game shooting estates in Britain. This industry is reported to be worth around $2 to the British economy every year. And every year, around 50 million non-native factory farmed pheasants and red-legged partridges are released into the British countryside purely to be killed by the shooters. This massive influx of non-native birds has had a devastating impact on our native wildlife as pheasants eat amphibians and reptiles such as lizards and snakes. In fact, the native adder has become a high-profile victim of this, with many reports of local extinctions now coming in from all around the UK. Pheasants have also had a significant impact on the local vegetation. Following a legal challenge by Wild Justice, a UK-based conservation organisation founded by Chris Packham, Mark Avery and Ruth Tingay, licences will now be required to release game birds into the countryside after October 2021. The game shooting industry annually releases around 38 million captive-bred pheasants and around 12 million red-legged partridges into the British countryside. The combined weight of these non-native game birds is roughly the same as the whole bird population in the UK, meaning that one in two European pheasants are actually here in the UK. This massive industry is causing horrific stress and suffering for the birds. Pheasants used for egg production are confined for their whole lives in tiny metal cages known as raised laying units. Each cage will contain five or six females and one male pheasant. The birds are often fitted with hoods that cover their beaks to stop pecking and to reduce injuries from the inevitable fights within the cage. These breeding units cause anxiety and stress 
Most birds are artificially incubated, although broody hens may still be used to hatch the young in some of the smaller rearing units. Incubator hatched chicks are transferred to a brooder system where they're densely stocked and kept warm for the first few days under artificial heat. Essential warmth provided in nature, of course, by their mother's sheltering wing. Many rearing units can hold up to 1,000 birds. Chicks are so stressed they resort to feather pecking and cannibalism. To control this, they are fitted with a device called a bit that prevents them from closing their own beaks. According to the game shooting industry, around 15 million birds are shot each year. But what they don't tell you is it's believed that around 3 million at the most of these birds are actually eaten. Whatever your thoughts on eating meat, that's way less than 10% of the total release. So, one for the pot is a myth. Far from the industry's claim that the birds live natural wild lives whilst breeding to support the native population next year, the truth is that many of the birds that are shot are simply tossed into mass graves known as stink pits after they are shot, making it clear that this is a bloodthirsty killing frenzy and nothing to do with food or conservation. In truth, more of the birds will die from predation, exposure, starvation and traffic collisions than will ever be shot and eaten. The most common type of game bird shoot is driven shooting, where beaters drive the birds from cover towards a line of stationary guns. The laughably named British Shooting and Conservation Organisation, in short BASC, states this form of shooting is much more formal than simply walking with your dog. To quote them, on the shoot deck a team of shooters or guns line out at numbered pegs. Meanwhile, under the gamekeeper's instructions, a group of beaters and their dogs move through the areas of woodland, flashing the game ahead of them. The aim is to get the birds to break cover and fly high over the line of guns to provide sporting shots. The shot game is retrieved quickly by a picker-up who sends their trained gun dog to where the shot game falls. The claims of the BASC of the quick collection of shot birds were shown to be false in a video released by animal welfare activists where the gun obviously ignores the injured birds, leaving them flapping on the ground as they slowly die from their gunshots, also including an unfortunate few that have fallen into the river after being shot and are now drowning. No attempt is made to retrieve them at all. This gun is as inaccurate as he is cruel and irresponsible. This is a bloody shooting frenzy, not the controlled event as the BASC claim. With no mandatory firearm training requirement in the UK, many birds die slow, painful deaths after being shot by inaccurate and inexperienced shooters. The only qualification to be a gun is you have to pay around £1,000 a day for shooting. Most use a repeating shotgun with a 12 or a 20 bore and lead ammunition. I mean, lead is poison, right? 
And that's why we have removed it from our petrol, our water pipes, our paint, and many other products. So how are these people allowed to shoot lead into food birds that will enter the human food chain, as well as leaving lead bullets deposited all over the countryside? Wildlife Matters would not suggest that anyone eats game food, particularly anything shot with lead. Still, the UK Food Standards Agency are sufficiently concerned to advise that pregnant women or women trying to become pregnant Toddlers and young children should avoid eating game meat shot with lead. Game birds that are sold at butchers and supermarkets or indeed given to food banks do not contain any warning labels. Wildlife Matters helped arrange testing back in 2020 that showed high levels of lead contamination in game birds sold by supermarkets. In fact, only Waitrose have agreed to only supply game meat that was not shot with lead, while Sainsbury's game meat was found to have had the highest level of lead contamination within the tests. Of course, hundreds of tons of highly toxic lead shot are discharged into the countryside environment each year. This contaminates rivers, lakes and the soil and enters the food chain when predators feed on shot bird carcasses. Despite its claims of conservation benefit, the game shooting industry in the UK is subjecting millions of birds to an inhumane life in terrible, cramped conditions, leaving them vulnerable before they shoot them. This morally corrupt industry needs more than licensing on the number of birds it can release each year. Although we acknowledge that licensing is an improvement, it's simply not enough. Wildlife Matters wants to see an end to being able to raise numbers of game birds into the UK in such cruel conditions. And we want to see an end to the subsidies that go from the government to the shooting estates to maintain biodiverse habitats that are great for nature and wildlife and for all of us and our planet too. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates. time on the wildlife matters podcast for our mindful moments but we're still having some problems and there are gremlins still hiding in our system so only have one clip that seems to work at the moment and it's a really short one and it's really really quiet at the start and then just as you tune your ears in it gets really loud at the end just to warn you so let's see if you and enjoy and tell me what is this week's mystery animal on this week's wildlife matters mindful moments I don't know if you were able to hear the very light breathing of an animal that was in semi-slumber hibernation mode 
it was, in fact, the beautiful Dormouse. And recorded on one of the surveys where we were out counting them um, last autumn, I think. And uh, not the best of audio clips. I do apologise. We are really working hard to get this sorted out and get it into our system. Um, and I hope that next time round we can bring you a full and relaxing few moments in nature on the Wildlife Matters podcast, Mindful Moments. Welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters main feature where we're looking at trail hunting and the myths and deceptions of the trail hunters. So before the Hunting Act of 2004, trail hunting simply did not exist. It was in late 2004 that the master of the Foxhounds Association called for a meeting with the hunting masters so that they could discuss how to continue blood hunting whilst still in brackets complying with the upcoming hunting act which would become law in February of 2005. The hunting act exemptions were being discussed particularly on how they could continue to hunt foxes despite the ban. Some suggested using birds of prey or the game bird exemption or having terriers hold foxes. However, what they came up with was far more sinister and disturbing than that. They were going to create a smokescreen by creating a hybrid of blood hunting and the traditional no-skill sport of drag hunting. The Master of the Foxhounds Association had created a monster a bastardization that would become known as trail hunting. This unethical, illegal activity would use the laying of a pre-scented drag or a cloth scented with something like fox urine to create a pre-laid trail for the hunters and the hounds to follow. Or would they? The reality was that the blood hunters had no intention of, of following a pre-laid trail scent. Some would go through the process of laying a trail, but it was apparent to hunt monitors that once the pack was released, they invariably set off in the opposite direction, following the scent of a live fox with the inevitable consequences that foxes were still being brutally killed. But now the hunt had a near perfect alibi. Every time they committed an offence, they just claimed it was an accident. Undeterred, the hunt monitors provided copious amounts of video and picture evidence to the police. But it soon became clear that the police had little appetite for investigating or indeed prosecuting offenders under the Hunting Act. Before the Hunting Act came into force, the masters of the Draghounds and Bloodhounds Association were particularly concerned about illegal live fox hunting and the suedo laying of trails that mimicked their sport but would have a detrimental effect on the drag hunting. They were right to be concerned, of course. Many were former fox hunters whose main motivation was to enjoy riding their horses over all kinds of challenging terrain. 
That was what they wanted to do. The killing of the fox was not something they wanted to do. So how could they stop the blood hunters from bringing their sport into disrepute? The MDBA insisted that the term drag hunting was and would remain their exclusive property and that the two associations should no longer be associated. The Master of the Foxhounds Association of course didn't want this, but their desire to continue to hunt foxes was so strong that they decided to create a new name and that is when the term trail hunting was born. Trail hunting was designed to replicate blood hunting as much as possible. It involves simulating the search for a scent for the foxhounds to follow. The laying of trails, it was claimed, was carried out in such a way as to mirror the movements of the hunted live quarry, that's hunter speak for a fox, with the result that the hunt's progress would be less predictable and at a far slower pace than that of a drag hunt. The trail hunts claimed that they had more emphasis on hound work than the drag hunts. The trail scent purportedly used was animal-based, but there is little information on the type of scents actually used. But in the case of the traditional fox hunting packs, fox urine was often claimed to be the scent used. Their reasoning for continuing to use animal-based scent was that when the Hunting Act was repealed, they would be in a better position to resume blood hunting with hounds that would not have to be retrained to foxes. So their intent was clear from the very start. I think it is fair to say that they were delusional and in complete denial of the law at this time. Sadly, nearly 20 years on though, many are still both delusional and in denial. At the time, the then director of the Master of the Foxhounds Association, Alistair Jackson, said, and I quote, While the Hunting Act is in place, one of the several legal alternatives to provide activity for hunts is trail hunting. This is for hounds to follow an artificial scent which has been laid in such a way as to mimic a real fox hunt. It would ideally not be the flat-out gallop typical of drag hunting and would take in different types of country and be a challenge for the hounds. It is one of the ways to keep the infrastructure of hunts intact until the repeal of the Hunting Act can be achieved. He continued, Measures need to be taken to avoid hunting live quarry as the trail scent laid is animal-based and trails are laid in areas where traditionally live quarry have been found, it is not surprising that the hounds often pick up on the scent of an animal and pursue it. Since November 2004, traditional hunts have had to retrain their hounds to follow an artificial scent. However, hunts claim that they are trying to replicate pre-ban hunting as closely as possible. I think he had very clearly set out their position. They were going to continue to hunt foxes and would use trail hunting as a disguise. Driver's statement was often the defense used by hunts that claimed that they were trail hunting when their hounds accidentally picked up the scent of their fox and had killed it before the huntsman could actually stop them. This raised many more questions to hunt monitors, but amazingly seemed to be sufficient to satisfy the judges in cases that were brought to the courts. Hunt monitors knew the blood hunters did not want to convert to drag hunting 
as they wanted their dogs to retain the scenting ability for wild quarry in the hope that the hunting act would be repealed. But why did the courts not consider that if a trail hunter was taking reasonable steps to avoid hunting a live quarry, why would they not have retrained their hounds to follow an artificial scent that would have virtually eliminated the possibility of the hounds picking up on a fox's scent? Why did they continue to hunt in known fox habitats and did they have control of their hounds as they were letting them run loose in public areas and had a responsibility to be able to control them, surely? It was clear to anyone who was listening when the Masters of the Drag Hounds Association said in a statement, if a hunt is taking reasonable steps to avoid hunting a live quarry, they should be able to show that they have retrained their hounds to follow an artificial scent. The introduction of young hounds over the past few seasons has allowed them to train them to follow a non-animal scent. The Master of the Drag Hounds Association has stated that if the intention is to trail hunt, several measures can easily be taken to prevent any accidents, namely the hunting of live quarry from occurring. The MDBA statement continued, firstly, to avoid those areas most likely to be used by the hunt's traditional quarry or a fox and not to lay scent in those areas. Secondly, when hunting live quarry, the lion is unpredictable and the animal may run anywhere but with trail hunting, the exact route is known. So it is a straightforward position for the hunt servants or the hunt supporters at key positions so that they can one, watch the hunt, and two, help stop hounds if they change to live quarry, or inform the huntsman to help stop hounds if they change to live quarry, or inform the huntsman if the hounds have changed to live quarry so that the hunt can be ended promptly. You may be thinking then that the trail hunters game was over, but no, they have been rumbled by the hunt monitors and publicly exposed by their former associates at the Drag Hunting Association. But tragically, for many foxes and a good number of innocent pets that have been killed by hounds along the way, the trail hunters have continued the pretense of following their scent since 2005. Despite several successful prosecutions taken by the RSPCA and the League Against Cruel Sports as the police were failing to take cases to court. Overall, the hunters have used their influence to stop the prosecutions of very many hunt members and their staff despite an overwhelming amount of evidence to support that they were illegally killing foxes. As smartphones have become a part of everyday life, they have had a significant impact on gaining evidence of illegal hunting, and the hunt sub groups and hunt monitors have thousands of videos of illicit activity. Most of these have never been reviewed by the police, and those that were rarely recommended for prosecution to the CPS or Crown Prosecution Service, even those exceptional cases that did go to the British courts, were often dismissed by the judges on a technicality. The hunt monitors went public in their dismay as they revealed how many British judiciary, police and local government officials were in fact members of their local hunts. It was clear that despite the Hunting Act, those of us who wanted to end the suffering of wild animals for so-called sport still had a mountain to climb. But 
the Hunters didn't give up protecting animals, many volunteers have dedicated hours every week for years to stop the hunts from killing our precious wildlife. Eventually, things changed significantly in August 2020, when the Master of the Foxhounds Association held a series of Zoom training seminars for hunt masters that were designed to help them maintain the pretense of trail hunting. And this included some very specific training on what was needed to be said to the police in the event of an investigation into any of their hunting activities. Mark Hankinson, a director of the Master of the Foxhounds Association, delivered that specific training. The Master of the Foxhounds Association Zoom calls were recorded and leaked to the media by hunt saboteurs. Mark Hankinson was subsequently prosecuted and found guilty. That conviction has undoubtedly contributed to an implosion within the Master of the Foxhounds Association, with their chairman, Lord Mancroft, being replaced in May 2021, as he and four other of the Master of the Foxhounds Association staff, including two former police officers, could all face possible prosecutions relating to their comments on the Zoom calls. Their words were noted by the judge during Mark Hankinson's trial, it is hoped that the private prosecutions of the other five people involved in delivering the training at the MFHA seminar will follow should the CPS continue to decide not to prosecute them. Trail hunting has a wafer-thin veneer of pretense to comply with the law of the land. Blood hunters who willfully disregard the law should face custodial sentences and landowners who allow hunting on their land should face the exact charges as anyone caught blood hunting on their land. There is no reason to hunt wild animals with packs of hounds and mounted riders today. In truth, there never was. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters main feature. Those trail hunters, they really get your blood boiling, don't they? Coming up on the next Wildlife Matters podcast, we are looking at stag hunting that is about to start up yet again and a little bit extra from our trip to the moors as we do Driven Grouse. What's it all about on Wildlife Matters Investigates? Now, a little bit of extra news for any of you who are going to the National Animal Rights March in London on the 26th of August. We will see you there. We're looking forward to hearing great speakers that have been announced. Wendy McGovern, Ronnie Lee, Sean Bars, and the awesome Aura Palmer. All of them will be there. We hope to see you. Wildlife Matters will be coming through the crowd, talking to you, and hopefully we'll be hearing from you on a future edition of this podcast. But... For now, this is me, your host, Nigel Palmer. It's Wildlife Matters, signing off.